Our first lesson this morning is from Malachi, beginning with the third chapter and the 13th verse. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and he heard them and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a degree of utter destruction. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Glory, Glory to you, Lord Christ. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem 
were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in the spirit of today's collect, I want to lead us through some study of Scripture in the first half of my sermon today, which will involve some in-depth consideration of our Old Testament lesson with some references from other parts of Scripture. So for those who are physically present, I'm going to invite you to refer to your bulletin sum and the insert you have. For those watching on live stream, we're going to try to put some of what I'm talking about on the screen. But it won't all be Bible study now. My ultimate aim in this will be for us to see God more clearly, of course, but more specifically to recalibrate our expectations about the salvation offered to us in Christ and to understand how we can go about receiving that salvation more fully. So if you're on board with that, here we go. For both this Sunday and next in Advent, the focus of the gospel is on John the Baptist. As today we turn to the very beginning of Mark's gospel. It opens the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But before encountering Jesus at all, we find Mark introducing us to John. Mark explains that John appeared in fulfillment of a prophecy by Isaiah as the forerunner of Jesus to prepare the way of the Lord by baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now God's people, the Jews, were anxiously awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And yet we also know that ultimately the overwhelming majority would end up rejecting him, end up rejecting Christ, failing to put their trust in him. Well, today I want to consider some of the factors that contributed to that. While some of the other Gospels report that many people came out to the Jordan to be baptized by John, we actually know from Luke's Gospel that the Jewish leaders refused to be baptized by John. And it's the leader's opposition to John and Jesus that would surely contribute to the majority of God's people, even those John did baptize, ultimately failing to follow Christ. As another gospel tells us, while John came to bear witness about Jesus, Jesus then came to his own people, but they did not receive him. So even though the Jews in the first century were anxiously awaiting the advent or coming of the Messiah, most of them ultimately failed to receive him and the salvation he sought to bring. And today I want to look at our passage from the prophet Malachi because it sheds some light on what caused God's own people to miss out on the kingdom life that Jesus sought to bring them. 
And my prayer is that it will help us then to avoid repeating some of the same mistakes which we're actually susceptible to even as followers of Christ. Our passage from Malachi today actually concludes that book. Chapter 4, verse 6 is the final verse of the book of Malachi. And not just that, it's the final verse of the entire Old Testament. The book of Malachi was written about five centuries before Christ. And after that came a period of silence where there were no prophets at all until John the Baptist came. So this means that the final prophetic word from God for more than 400 years is this prophecy right here that concerns the day of the Lord when God will come and distinguish between the righteous. 3.17 says that the Lord will spare the righteous like a man spares his son who serves him. But according to 4.1, God will reduce the wicked and arrogant to stubble. But Malachi also reveals in 3.1 at the beginning of our passage that before the Lord comes, he will send a messenger before him to prepare the way. Then later towards the end, 4.5 says that the prophet Elijah will come before that great and awesome day. Now just a word about Elijah. While Malachi closed out the Old Testament age of the prophets, Elijah had essentially started it. After Israel and Judah split into two separate kingdoms around 930 BC, Elijah was the first of a long line of prophets that God began to send to his people. But Elijah was known not only for being the first of this, these prophets, but also the fact, for the fact that he famously had not died. Instead, Elijah was taking up, taken up into heaven by God on a chariot of fire. So this Malachi passage is the final prophetic word from God, which God's people will wait more than 400 years to be fulfilled until it is fulfilled, but they miss it. When I say it's fulfilled, the church has understood John the Baptist to be fulfilling both, the pro both of the prophecies here about forerunners in Malachi 3.1 and 4.5. It's not by accident that the church has made Malachi the last Old Testament book in the Christian Bible. And then right after that, we have the first gospel written, picking up with the fulfillment of what Malachi left off with in Mark 1.1. But does this mean, then, that John the Baptist is Elijah? Is John the Baptist Elijah? Well, it's complicated. As you can see in the box in your insert or on the slide, in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist was actually asked directly by the people if he was Elijah and said no. But according to verse 6 of our Mark passage today, John chose to dress in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, which was the unique dress Elijah was known for wearing. In 2 Kings. Then, in Matthew 11, Jesus states that John fulfilled Malachi 3.1. He quotes Malachi 3.1 there in verse 10 of Matthew 11. And in verse 14, Jesus explicitly tells his disciples that John the Baptist, quote, is Elijah, 
if you are willing to accept it. And that last line is kind of interesting because Jesus is saying this to a crowd in a context where, where many of that crowd were baptized by John and yet they're not really believing in Jesus. So it's as if Jesus is saying, well, if you're willing to receive my message about the kingdom and believe in me, then John was Elijah. Right? If you're willing to receive me, then John was the forerunner of uh, salvation in your life. But if not... So the way the church has tended to explain the mysterious question between John and Elijah is that John came in the spirit of Elijah. Saying that allows a lot of wiggle room for what exactly it means. And that John fulfilled that prophetic role preceding the Messiah. So if that's the case then, how or why did so many of God's people fail to accept John as fulfilling this role? I mean, he's dressed up like the guy. More importantly, how could they have refused to put their faith in Christ? Well, a look back at our passage from Malachi reveals that it had a lot to do with wrong expectations based on Scripture. In fact, I want to suggest that that God's people had three expectations, which they thought were supported by this Malachi passage, but that contributed to the Jews' failure to receive Christ when he came, because they were wrong expectations. The first expectation was that the Jewish people and elders would have taken this Malachi passage to be describing a single event or set of events. They they anticipated Elijah would come back and that when he did, this would be followed more or less immediately by that great and awesome day of the Lord. The day of judgment would follow immediately after this coming of Elijah. So what they never could have anticipated is that there could be two comings of the Lord. What we now understand is Jesus first appearing immediately after John the Baptist, right, 2,000 years ago, and a second coming that we're still waiting on, the, the, the judgment, the day of judgment. So similar to what we saw Jesus doing in Mark chapter 13 last week, it seems like the book of Malachi may include prophecy that blends together events that weren't necessarily going to occur anywhere near each other from a time perspective. And thus leading to uh, a misunderstanding and false expectation by those original hearers. But this leads to the second obstacle for the Jewish people believing in Christ when he came, which was that the matter in which Jesus came, of course at least as far as they could tell, was merely a man, right? Jesus was merely a man, at least to the naked eye. So for them, the idea of him being the Lord, the Lord, God, coming to them in a a human way, that was simply beyond anything they could comprehend, right? It conflicted with everything they'd been taught about God as being uh, this being who is completely other, other than them, separate from them. So when Jesus begins his public ministry and, and they know his parents, right, his earthly parents, they know they're from Nazareth, and, you know, any notion that this guy is God, like, would have been completely lost on them. 
It doesn't matter what miracles he performed or how John the Baptist was dressed. To believe that, that this was all the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy that they've been waiting so anxiously for, that would have been just a bridge too far for them to grasp. However, it is notable, if we're talking about this Malachi passage really really being about two comings of the Lord, it's notable that Malachi 3.1 at the beginning there hints actually at what Jesus did in his first coming. It says that after the messenger, John, comes preparing the way, quote, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come. And in the Hebrew here, it's not what we usually have for the Lord, Yahweh or Jehovah, right? That's the case at the end of this verse. But right here, it's a more ambiguous word that could refer to a human Lord or to God, Right? So what it describes could really fit with what Jesus did in his first coming after John the Baptist, right? Again, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly this Lord you're seeking, the the Messiah you want, will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, right? The new covenant, whom you desire, will come, says says Yahweh Almighty. Even the next two verses, though, they say, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, the the priesthood, and refine them like gold and silver. This could be about the second coming, but frankly, it could be said about Jesus' first coming. It fits. So, You see, in in hindsight, this Malachi prophecy, among others, put God's people in a difficult situation. Did Did God's people put too much stock in their own understanding of what this passage meant? And did that blind them from recognizing the Lord when he really came? Yes. Yes, they did. Yes, it did. But at the same time, could any humans in their situation have been expected to deduce from this Malachi prophecy that God would be sending his divine son as a man and sending him not just once, but twice? And yet in hindsight, there's not anything in this prophecy that contradicts God doing that, right? It never says this will be one event. So I guess I want to say, let's have a little compassion for God's people not believing. Frankly, though, even that could could probably have been overcome if it weren't for the third and final obstacle that was created by the Jewish people's interpretation of this Malachi prophecy. I hope you're still tracking with me, but in its original context, right, that this Malachi passage was written, it was the first, fifth century B.C., In that time, many Jews had begun to ridicule faith in God because they were frustrated with him, right? Following God hadn't been what they expected it to be, what they thought it should be, right? He hadn't done what they wanted wanted him to do. So in 313 through 15, which is the part we haven't looked at yet, this is actually who God is is referring to and speaking to. When he says these verses, he says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? What's the point of worshiping God? And now 
we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to test and they escape. There's no consequence. So these folks in the day that Malachi was written thought they could scoff at faith in God and that they could be disobedient to his law and essentially ignore God without there really being any consequence. That's arrogance, right? But as it rolls into chapter four, God says they got another thing coming, right? That judgment's coming. When such arrogant people will be reduced to stubble, while the righteous who've served him will make up his treasured possession and be spared. Well, these few verses explain a lot about what the Jewish faith had developed into by the time John and Jesus come on the scene. You see, in the five centuries since this final prophecy was uttered, in anticipation of this day of judgment and described, the Jews had completely organized their approach to religion to try to ensure that they would not be counted among those that this passage calls wicked. And that they would instead be counted among the ones this passage calls righteous. And they aimed to achieve this by doing the precise opposite of what God was criticizing these wicked people for in Malachi. Which seems logical, right? They're getting in trouble for what they're doing. Let's do the opposite of it, right? But what this meant is that by Jesus' day, the standard of righteousness had become defined as doing everything for God. All this outward performance of being meticulous in one's practice of worship and and ritual and and scrupulous in obeying God's law and, and paying your tithe. Or what in those days became known as the way of the Pharisees. Pharisees. And so the Jewish leaders by the time of Jesus who were largely all Pharisees almost, they had become convinced that there were plenty for whom the Lord's coming, that day of the Lord would be really, a really, really bad day, but they were also convinced it wasn't going to be a bad day for them. Rather, they figured it would be the Jews who'd lapsed in their religion, the Gentiles, and most of all, the Romans occupying their holy land whom the Lord would reduce to stubble. That's how they saw God reversing the downward spiral of evil that they saw all around them. By the time John the Baptist had shown up, you see that the Jews weren't too happy with what had come of their world. Maybe something we can relate to. They'd been going through, in their case, almost a century of frustration living under Roman rule where they were taxed heavily They were not allowed the liberty to govern themselves. And there was tremendous political unrest unrest and division among the Jewish people about what it meant to really live faithfully in that difficult circumstance. They were all over the map. Some went along with it. Some were zealot revolutionaries and everything in between. So in other words, it was a lot like the church in America today. A lot of people are frustrated with the way the world is, the world around us is, for various reasons that may be different, different perspectives. And there's a lot of division about what it really looks like to live faithfully as a Christian in the circumstances we're in. Whether it's politically, whether it's in coronavirus or whatever. So it was a difficult setting that the Jews were living in in the first century and 
And they, as they awaited the Lord's coming, they had be, they'd become convinced that God's coming on that great day would rescue them from all of it. In fact, most of them expected the Lord's Messiah to invade Jerusalem, to take it by storm and sack the Romans, and they figured they'd even be able to get in a few shots themselves, right? They had read Malachi 4, 3, where God promises, the righteous shall tread down the wicked on the day when the Lord acts. And they imagined getting to take vengeance on all of their enemies and all the people whom they disagreed with and who, who had oppressed them, they thought. And then they expected this to be followed by the Lord himself praising them for being the righteous. This was their expectation. So if that's their expectation, and John the Baptist shows up dressed like Elijah, but telling them who thought themselves righteous to repent for forgiveness of their sins. When the Jewish leaders heard this, they were aghast. They were apoplectic, right? They figured they were the last people who needed to repent. In their minds, they'd done the exact opposite of everything that prophecy from Malachi had criticized. What do they need to repent of? They go to church, they pay their tithe, they try to follow God's law. But in truth, they had actually become just like the arrogant whom God is addressing in Malachi. Who had placed expectations upon God, and then when God didn't fulfill them the way they expected, had taken matters into their own hands rather than submitting to his plan. See, what John the Baptist was revealing was that the truly righteous are not those who seek to do everything just right, but instead are those who are willing to humble themselves before God in repentance, whose hearts are turned toward the Father and who, who are His, live as His treasured possession because they throw their lot in with His Son and trust in His plan, not the way they think things should be. Well, I hate to admit it, but that mistake of God's people in the first century, that is one that we are equally vulnerable to today as well. Now you may say, well, how? Well, as we also live in a world that's a pretty big mess in a lot of ways, right? in other words, it's, there are many things about it that are not the way we want it to be. The great temptation then is for us to live as if all the problems are out there in the world, in other people, and not in here, in us. And unfortunately, this mindset can lead us to live out of our identity in Christ in an us versus them manner tribalism, and thus, frankly, repeat the very mistakes of God's first century people. Now, what can that look like? Well, for some Christians, it may look like nursing a sort of vengeance fantasy about Jesus's second coming, right? Like those first century Jews were thinking about the day of the Lord, right? Well, we're frustrated with what's going now, but man, all these people, they'll get it someday. And that's not good for anybody's soul. 
So we may do that, but we're more likely to use our status as God's treasured possession as a license to tread down the wicked, as Malachi 4.3 says, to tread them down ourselves. How? By actions of judgment and attitudes of judgment toward others. Of not discerning right from wrong, that's okay, but, but punishing and mistreating people and lashing out at them verbally in our hearts according to their sin, harboring resentment toward them for their sin and how it affects the world we have to live in. All too often, we want to trample the wicked, don't we? We are delighted for the possibility that the wicked would get what's coming to them so long as we, that is, get to define who the wicked are. But this ignores that evil is not simply out there. No, it is within us. As Alexander Soltzenhain famously said, the line of evil runs through every man's heart. And so if we want to actually make a dent in the evil in this world, we need to give up this notion of, of putting others in their place or vengeance fantasies about people we disagree with. If we want to make a dent in the evil in this world, our greatest potential is to reduce evil in ourselves. Not in our own power, but by making straight Jesus' path to our hearts and lives so we can be changed. That's what repentance does. It says, change me. Have your way in me. Let me reflect you more, Christ. The salvation Jesus offers is not to destroy our enemies. Rather, it is to disarm us. That's the salvation he offers, to disarm us. To lessen our contribution to humanity's problem and increase our contribution to the solution. And that's why the key to receiving the kingdom and the salvation Jesus offers isn't about praying some little prayer at some point in our lives. It is about developing the reflex of self-examination and repentance as a way of, our, a way of life. Develop that as a reflex of looking inward before we blame out. Jesus' reversal of the downward spiral comes in and through those who are willing to repent, not just once, but as a posture of living. And particularly in Advent, this rings true because, it, after all, is a penitential season. I was reflecting this week about how I haven't done all that great of a job this year, or frankly in any years past, to empower or, or to teach our, us, our parish, how to treat Advent as a penitential season, right? It's kind of like, yeah, we put the purple up and everything, but Lent's the real penitential season. So what I'd like to do today as I close is I, I'd, like to, I'd like to give a very specific directive. And you can choose to take it if you want or not. For your Sabbath today, I want to invite you to take a little time to ask for God's grace to do a little self-examination. But not just self-examination in general. I mean self-examination on a particular question. And that is, where or against whom have I taken up an us versus them mentality? 
It could be against a particular person. It could be against a few people. It could be against a group of people. Whom, who have I allowed to essentially be, you know, they're, they're doing what I want them to do to really be my God, you know, to be what would, what would give me peace. Good luck waiting, right? Where have we repeated the mistake of those Jesus first came to who had projected all the evil outwards and all the difficult they'd experienced onto Rome or this group of people or that group of people? Where are we repeating that right now? And once we identify whom we've taken this posture toward, I want to invite us to, to confess it to another person. Now, you can confess it to a priest. You can call me up or Father Jim up if you want. But you can just as well confess it to another believer, to your spouse or your friend or somebody at church. Call them up and say, yeah, you know, I don't know if you heard the sermon today, but John's asking us to do something and... You know that thing he asked us to do? I, I, I want to confess, I've really been harboring, I realize I've, I've been harboring a lot of hatred toward so-and-so or toward this group of people. And I want to turn away from that and view them as Christ does. Now, I understand as I suggest this that a lot of folks aren't too keen on repentance and confession. Like it's one thing to do the, the corporate one in the liturgy and kind of say those words, but a lot of people aren't too keen on rep personal repentance and confession because I think one reason for that is because we, we often only see the first half of what's involved. Pastor Timothy Keller says that too often Christians repent but they don't then allow faith to lead them. We don't allow faith to then lead us to rejoice after repentance. And this is especially a bummer for those of us who are already prone to feel a good bit of self-loathing. We're really not going to want to repent if we only see that first half. Right? I already feel bad enough about myself. I don't want to feel worse. Keller would describe that as fear-based repentance. But he says, he says fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. But joy-based repentance makes us hate the sin. Joy-based repentance is represented by three R's. Recognize, we recognize our sin, then we return to the Lord and we rejoice. Why? Because we're forgiven. Because we're forgiven and because he wants to help us overcome that in his strength. Just listen to this by, by St. John Climacus. He explained it this way. He said, To repent is not to look downward at my own shortcomings, but upwards at God's love. Repentance is not to look backwards with self-reproach, but forward with trustfulness. It is to see not what I have failed to be, but what by the grace of Christ I might yet become. And who with the eyes of eyes and heart of faith wouldn't want to do that? So today I, I hope you'll give it a try. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.